I'm Harry. I'm Nash. And this week we're going all the way from the 28th of May to the 3rd of June. And if you haven't done it already, make sure to subscribe. If you haven't done it already, what's wrong with you? Especially yeah. if you have been listening to us say this for weeks. Yeah, we've been I'll saying this I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're just a regular person. You yeah. have needs that aren't being met elsewhere, so you can't devote the time and resources to hit that little like button. <laughs> Fair enough. I get it. Subscribe yeah, wow. button. I get it. I get it. Uh, that got really intense really quick. But Nash, <laughs> what are you speaking about this week in history? Well, just like my little rant there, I'm talking about something that got extremely intense, extremely quickly. On June 1st, 1985, this was the day that saw the Battle of Beanfield. The the what? The Battle of Beanfield. No, I heard you. An unsuitably <laughs> hilarious name for a pretty grim event, as okay. you will come to see. All right, so you're not telling us any more, <laughs> evidently. But I will tell you a bit more about what happened on May 29, 1953, because this is the day that the first individual, or rather, they were a duo, reached... So not an individual at all. Not an individual at all. It was two people. They reached the (laughs) summit of Mount Everest. Find out who and how they did it right after this. The rugged Himalayas continue to challenge adventurous humans. This is particularly true of Mount Everest, the world's highest mountain. Now, Nash, I want to ask you this hypothetical question. Just, just you know, imagine for a second. I want you to give a real answer. It's a clear blue day. Wait, no, hang on. Sorry, I don't think you understand how hypothetical questions work. You just said, I want you to imagine and give a real answer. So Yeah, hypothetically, give a real imagination answer. You know what? I don't understand how rhetorical questions work. Forgive me. Proceed. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a, oh, it's a clear blue day. And you're standing at the base of a little old mountain. Your bags are packed with supplies and you've got your trusty oxygen mask. And you have your favourite Sherpa by your side. He's just, he's just hanging out. He's, he's ready for a fun day ahead. I don't like the subtext of having to have a favourite Sherpa. It suggests I've gone through a few. Some didn't work out. Maybe they're still up on the mountain. Who knows? Yeah, look, we'll get to Sherpas and their role in everything later. Okay. But we'll get the hypothetical that's real, okay? Okay. So... <laughs> You look at the mountain and you pause. You realize it isn't small at all. It's actually the highest point above sea level. And you're probably going to die just trying to climb it. Not even making it to the top, just trying to climb it. Mm. I mean, look at all the snow. Look at all the dead people. (laughs) Chances are you're going to die. So the big question is, would you climb the mountain? Would you do it? Me? Yeah, that's why the hypothetical is you. I wasn't like hypothetical to the world. It's to Nash. Will you do it? Um, look, I'm all for climbing metaphorical mountains. You know, it's all about the climb. I love me some Miley Cyrus, but I, I would turn to. back. I would, <laughs> well, I don't have the cardiovascular endurance to make it from here to the fridge, let alone up a friggin' mountain. <laughs> well, Nash, the good news is I really don't care at all what you have to say because oh, okay. on the 29th of May, 1953. So you did want a rhetorical question. Yeah, it was rhetoric. Um, Edmund <laughs> Hillary and Tenzig Norgay. They climbed the mountain. They looked, they saw, they conquered. They made it to the summit of the tallest mountain above sea level, Mount Everest. Okay, so by saying the tallest mountain above sea level, you make it sound as though there's a mountain that's taller beneath the ocean. Yeah, so there is a mountain in Hawaii that's yeah. 6,000 meter, metres tall, which is less than the 8,800 that is Everest. Yeah. But... It's 4,000 metres below sea level. Well, it begins 4,000 metres. Yeah, well, that's where it begins. So it's starting like the bottom of the ocean. So technically, the structure itself is like what, 10,000 metres? 10,000 metres. 
Yeah, so there but is that's neither here nor there. We don't care about we that. We don't care about that because we technically care about higher mountain. I want to go to the legitimately the highest mountain, so, the mountain that's the highest in our minds, in our hearts. Yeah, definitely in our hearts. It's actually known as one of the. It's it's known as the third pole because you got the North Pole, South Pole, and then Everest, which is the third pole <laughs> on the equator. Yeah, yeah okay. also the tallest. Hmm. Now, what is Mount Everest? Well, firstly, it's it's a mountain, and it's part of the Great Himalayas in Asia, lying on the border between Nepal and Tibet, which is part of China at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's called Mother Goddess of the Land by the Tibetans. Um, the English name was actually after uh, a man called Sir George Everest. Uh, he was a British surveyor of South Asia and they decided to name the mountain after him. It's interesting. I would have thought that if they named the mountain after him, he'd be the guy who would have you know, made it to the summit first. You know, I'm the king of the mountain, going to uh, name it after he me. Just, he just mapped it. He didn't actually oh, climb okay. it. He surveyed the land. Yeah. Now, the issue with the height of Everest is that there's different different versions of how tall Everest is. But Okay, what, roughly, like metric versus imperial? No, or? like Nepal versus China versus other people that have said measurements oh, okay. of it. Okay. It's roughly about... 8,850 meters high, which is pretty tall. So it averages also about minus 36 degrees Celsius to minus 60 degrees Celsius. Uh, For those playing at home, that's minus 33 degrees Fahrenheit to minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a pretty cold place. Chances are you're going to die if you go there. And yet people keep going. So, I mean, the last fact to know about it is it's also the home of the Yeti in the Himalayas, Ah. which is probably one of the most important. Good thing you put it at the end there. Yeah, well, I had to finish (laughs) with the Big Bang. Um, So the real question is, why would anyone want to climb this death trap? I feel this is a similar answer as to why did France and England and the Soviets, why did they need to compete against the Americans and everyone? for supersonic flight or to go to the moon? Or why does any human being do anything that is totally irrational? It's because they want to say they were the first. Progress. Seems like fun. I mean, what progress do you get by climbing up a mountain? Pretty much zero. Zero project. It's pro- oh yeah, fair enough. But it's you, you prove that it's possible. Yeah, cool. Who cares? Like what a absolutely <laughs> irrelevant thing to do. I think by climbing a mountain like that. It means you can go and have a very successful career talking at corporations and inspiring people who work in nine to five. Yeah, thank That's you, very- Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins. Also Buzz, I guess. Also Buzz. Yeah. Um, That's maybe the first time Michael Collins has been remembered instead of Buzz Aldrin. Well, we love Michael Collins on this show, so really everyone should know that he's number one. <laughs> now, Nash, on the 29th of May, our day in history in 1953, just before lunch... A New Zealander called Edmund Hillary and a Nepalese Sherpa called Tenzing Norgay. They were the first explorers to reach the summit. Tenzing was a Nepalese Sherpa. He was. Ah. Surprising, right? Tenzing. I thought that was a British name. Tenzing. No, seriously. How I, many I, Tenzings I, I haven't you know seen it. I haven't seen it written. England. I know. It, sound, it sounds like the Thames. It's more to like me. a Norwegian name. Tenzing. Tenzing. Anyway. I know. Tenzington. Obviously, that's not the same, but whatever. <laughs> Look, for these guys, it took them about seven weeks to get from base camp to the top, but only three days to come down from the summit to base camp. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Free falling. Ah. But these explorers were not the first to try and reach the summit of Everest. So there's a lot more to happen to this story. But before we can even get to the first summit, we have okay. to go to the attempts. Ah, so, <laughs> okay. These two explorers were by far not the first and they definitely were not the last. In fact, many people have died trying to get up Everest since they've made it to the summit. But many people have also succeeded as well. Well, Yeah, heaps have. Um, 
And we're starting off in 1921, when a British expedition, they trekked across Tibet to get to the foot of Everest. They did not climb up Everest, but they got to the foot. And the reason they didn't climb it is because it was, it was a bit stormy. There was a bit too much going on. So they were like, look, <laughs> if we go up, we're probably going to die. The weather wasn't so great, they turned back. Okay, yeah. fair enough. So one of the earliest mountaineers, and probably one of the most important for our yeah. story, mm-hmm. is George Lee Mallory. And he's really important because he was in this first expedition in 1921. And this is officially the first attempt to climb Everest. And it is an utter failure. They didn't even make it to what is now base camp. Right, okay. They made it to the foot of Everest. So now we're heading a year later to the second take in 1922. Another British expedition with our mate, Mallory. Yeah. But he's joined now by George Finch and another guy called Jeffrey Bruce. And they, they make it close to the top. Very close. Ooh. But they don't make it to the summit. Oh, okay. How close are we talking here? We're talking like within a thousand meters of the summit, which sounds like a lot. Oh, but I feel like that would be so really disheartening. I mean, if, if you, I mean, okay, last time they couldn't even try because the weather was so bad, mm-hmm. but they proved to themselves that they had the right stuff, they I the, guess. They had the, almost the right stuff. The good stuff. Ah, it's like, that's like coming second in the Olympics. No, know? it's not because they didn't even make it. So they would have false started in the Olympics and then done the whole race <laughs> and failed. Okay. Now, All right. Mallory tried again later that year, but actually had to turn back when seven of his Sherpas were killed in an avalanche Ooh. while he was trying to go up. And the, the plight of the, the Sherpa is definitely a common theme throughout this story. Sherpas I, are absolutely yeah. shat on throughout yeah. the whole story. I was about to say that... Uh, it's funny that we never know the names of the Sherpas. Well, but, except Tenzing. Except Tenzing. But now, well, here's the thing. I didn't realize that he was a Sherpa. Yeah, you probably So even though he is known. a Sherpa, he didn't get the credit where credit was due. Yeah, Because the rest true. of the Sherpas, can you name another Sherpa? I can't. Yeah, I can. Well, you've just researched it, Sherpa. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I've, I've cheated, <laughs> essentially. Um, so we're heading now to take three, which happens in 1924. And again, it's British with a climber called Edward Norton. He's also known for Edward his fantastic Norton. role as the Hulk, which is definitely his best role as um, as an actor in America. I preferred him in uh, American any other History movie? X. Yeah, yeah, probably any other movie. Literally than any other movie. Hulk. I'd much rather see him curb stomp someone <laughs> yeah. as a Nazi <laughs> than see him in the Hulk. Yeah, well, <laughs> suffice to say, not the same Ed Norton, but he did reach a height of 8,573 metres but he fell 270 meters short of the summit. When so you say he fell, it. no, he didn't fall. He was he made it back down, not ah, dying. Okay. Interesting now, choice of words. Yeah, I know, probably the worst choice of words. Now, take 4 happens the 6th to the 9th of June in 1924. We're still not up to our date in history. And this day is when Mallory, he takes a new partner. He's back. He's back. I'm starting to think Mallory, you might be the problem, mate. You're the uh, common denominator in all these failed attempts. I think maybe you're speaking a bit too soon because oh. on this day in history, 6th to the 9th of June, we're not really sure which day in history, one of the days, him and his partner, Andrew Irvine, they finally reach the summit. Oh, what? I th- you're confused, right? So Ah, they don't make it down alive. Well, no. We're not sure if they reach the summit or not. People are saying, yes, they've reached the summit. People are saying, no, they haven't reached the summit. And that's all because... They disappear. They never oh, make what? it back down the mountain, right? Ever. They they tried, they failed, mm. and there's a big mystery around this around this summit attempt because people aren't sure if Mallory made it to the top. Well, I think at the end of the day, does it really matter? Because Yes, it you, does. 
No. It 100% matters if he made it to the top. He, this is this is the thing where, like, if a tree falls in a forest, does anybody hear it? If you make it to the summit of Everest but don't survive, does anybody give a well, shit? No one even knows if he made it to the top. <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. In 1999... Another- so, I mean... I should, you should make Gil the dead. It's very tragic that that's a way to die. But I'm sure they literally died doing what they loved. I can't imagine you go up uh, the tallest mountain in the world and not happen to love it. Yeah. So I think they were keen mountaineers. But in 1999, yeah. this is when they finally found Mallory's body. They found him frozen in the ice. Not at the top? Not at the top. He'd fallen and he was in a shape on the ground. Like he was frozen, preserved quite well. Like a was- pretzel? Quite obvious that he'd yeah broken a lot of Oy. bones and stuff, but there's he's missing things that make you think that he made it to the top. So he was missing a picture of his wife that supposedly he was going to put on the top. It might have just you know flown away. Who knows? He's missing a pair of goggles that suggest that he was on his way back down instead of his way up. My conclusions from this Mallory attempt is that he's still up on Everest. That body is a fake, and he's actually the Yeti. I know. Hold back your, mm. hold back your mm. contempt. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, that's there's a bunch of attempts that are trying to get to the top of Everest and they all fail. 1949, Nepal allows foreigners finally to come and hike. So expeditions start again. So before that point, foreigners were not allowed to hike up Everest from the Nepalese side. They could do it from the Tibetan side. They could not do it from the Nepal side. Oh, okay. Yeah, makes sense because it's on the border. So... Finally, Nepal opens its doors, and this starts to a slew of new expeditions. Does this mean that essentially Hillary and Temzing had an easier path, for lack of a better word, up the mountain? Like, <laughs> yeah, the, I guess, the yeah. Tibetan side is more difficult than the Nepalese Well, it must side? be, because no one was able to make it to the top. So yeah. you'd assume that it's an easier, easier go from Nepal. And this is when the Swiss, they enter the game, and they send up Raymond Lampert and Temzing, the oh, Sherpa. Okay. And he makes it around 8,600 meters up, but of course falls 280 short meters short. He doesn't fall again, bad use of language, but he doesn't make it to the top um, because he didn't pack enough Swiss cheese. So obviously without the cheese, you can't make it to the top. Britain, <laughs> Britain gets worried and they're like, oh no, we can't let the Swiss Well, this beat sa- us. This sounds like the closest attempt so far. It is. If you discount is. Mallory... Who might have made may or may top. not have made it. If he did make it, he didn't make it all the way back, if you yeah. know what I mean. So the British suitably are getting a little bit worried. So the British, they steal Tenzing. They say, hey, now you're our Sherpa and you're going to come with Edmund Hillary up the top. Interesting that the British would say this about a New Zealand explorer. Well, he's part of the Commonwealth. So really, he's owned by Britain. <laughs> so their <laughs> it's thought, a subsidiary. Their thought was okay, we'll get this. Auckland beekeeper who loves climbing mountains to climb the mountain. That's yeah, Edmund right. Hillary. So who he was a beekeeper before he climbed Everest. Wow. But he was a keen mountaineer, right? And he'd done a lot of climbing. That's before. where the best bees are, at the top of the mountain. Everybody knows that. Yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> lots of bees at minus 60 degrees Celsius. So we're probably up to attempt, I don't know, 35 now. A lot of people have tried to make it up so far. No one succeeded. Taking the month of April and May to start the climb... They really wanted to make sure it was a, sm- a slow and steady process. Edmund, Tenzing, and a group of other mountaineers, they start heading up Everest. And on May 26th, Charles Evans and Tom Berdolin, they attempt to climb up the mountain. And they would have made it to the top. Wait, wait, wait. Were they with? Edmund? They were with the same group. Oh, okay. They were with the same group, and they would have made it to the top 
except they had a faulty oxygen tank. So Edmund Hiller, Hillary shouldn't have even been the first person up there. It should have actually been Charles Evans. But their tank failed. Tank failed. So they come back down, and then on the 28th of May, Tenzing and Hillary, who are also on their way up to the top, yeah. they set out to do the last 270 metres. They camped the night before on the 28th of May at 8,503 well, let's just make it 8,504 metres to round up nicely. <laughs> They've camped there and they need to do the final 380 metres to make it okay. to the summit. Yeah. They're going to be the first. So, using a crack in the rock's face and a couple of other nifty manoeuvres, mm. the crack is actually now called Hillary's Step because it's... I was waiting for you to say call it Hillary's Crack, no, which doesn't sound quite I as mean, appealing. Hillary's Step sounds nicer, but on... 11.30 a.m. on the 29th of May, 1953. Hillary and Tenzing, the mm. Sherpa, mm. make it to the summit of Everest. And finally, Britain has conquered Mount Everest. And the world. And the world as well, because it was very <laughs> meaningful. Now, I got really excited reading all about Everest, so I thought I'd share with you some records about Everest. Uh, yeah, okay. If that's okay with you, if yeah. you don't mind listening a bit. <gasps> yeah, no, of course. Okay, thank you. So, <laughs> and I guess this has to do a bit with my rant as well about Sherpas. And we've spoken about Sherpas briefly. They don't get the credit they're due. Guess who has done Everest 21 times? Summited Everest 21 times? Yep. Would that be the most amount of time someone has summited most Everest? Two people have done it? I'd say that would be... Maybe Tenzing himself? No, it wasn't. No. It's ah. Upper, who doesn't even have a last name, but he's known as Upper the Super Sherpa, <laughs> and Porbi Tashi, who is also a Sherpa. So two yeah. Sherpas have done it the most, right? Where's their name in the history books, right? It's disgusting. Where is it? Where? <laughs> well, I mean, this, I guess it comes down to that thing where like, they're not writing the history books. They're too busy climbing Everest. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, okay, that's a very yeah. crass way of but looking at it. But I don't think it. Sherpas get enough credit. Oh, no, I agree, I agree. I mean, like I said before, I, I had no idea that even Tenzing was a, was a, was a Sherpa. Exactly. I assume Tenzing was an eccentric British dude. No, it's ridiculous. The first woman, not a Sherpa. It was Junko Tebe in 1975 from Japan. She was the first woman. Um, the fastest ascent to the top of Everest from base camp is eight hours. That's really fast. Yeah, and right. that was done by a Nepalese man. The oldest person to do it was 80 years old. The youngest was 13 years old from USA. Wow. What a great way to like, <laughs> to test your kid. Yeah. Like, <laughs> do Everest. Punish them. Is that a treat or a punishment at 13 I years old? I think he was actually, he hadn't done his homework for a couple of weeks. So yeah. because he hadn't done his homework, he actually had to climb Mount Everest and make it to the Seems summit. fair. So, I mean, it's only Seems really fair. fair. What's really interesting, though, is around 300 people have died attempting to reach the summit. And the last known year without a death was 1977. That was the last year. Without a death 1953, without a death attempting to get to the summit. Everest now is really dirty with, like, rubbish and oxygen tanks and, like, it's pretty overpopulated with tourists. But I think now is a time that we just do a quick plug for the Sherpas out there. We want to acknowledge you, and I, and we have in the past had Nepalese listeners. Just putting it out there, I've seen it on our graphics thing. We want to acknowledge you, <laughs> the Sherpas. You deserve to be the heroes in the history book. Whether you're young, you're old, you're male, you're female, it doesn't matter. Because you are the strength beneath my wings. The yeah. wind beneath my wings? I, I don't know. 
I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Sherpas are great. And without Sherpas, this story wouldn't have happened. That's for sure. Uh, again, my apologies for not acknowledging that Tenzing was a Sherpa and not some like Yorkshire f- fellow. Yeah. I tell you what, he definitely wasn't. What? Someone who went to a bean festival. What uh, even is a bean festival? Okay. Can you please well, tell us. The Battle of the Bean Field. Can we hear it? You can definitely hear it right after this. Henge in Wiltshire after violent clashes between police and a convoy of hippies. The convoy crashed through roadblocks to try to get into an illegal pop festival. Are you a fan of music festivals, Harry? Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed a couple of my times. Splendor in the Grass is one of them. Groove in the Move, I quite enjoy <laughs> Future Music Festival, did not enjoy. Stereo Sonic, did not enjoy. Okay, okay. A very certain type of music festival for yeah, a very certain could, type of boy. I could ask you if you like music festivals, but I've been with you to music festivals and I know the answer is... No. no. <laughs> I do not like music festivals. They are bloody war zones. I mean, I mean, if, yeah. you, if you think about it, okay. you're out in a field somewhere, thousands of people. It's loud, it's dirty, you're competing for resources, for food, for water, for alcohol, for drugs, for sex, for a clean place, to go to the toilet. For sunscreen. Also, everyone's <laughs> for pumping sunscreen. in the air as well. <laughs> that punch whoa, could go anywhere. It's not for me. I'll stick to Instagram. Thank you very much. <laughs> also, it's so damn expensive to go to a music festival. It Splendor is. in the Grass, your favourite. Uh, I mean, if you don't know, by the way, for international listeners, Splendor in the Grass is essentially... Um, it's Australia's Coachella. Yes. Three yeah. days... Big international acts, big Australian acts, middle-sized Australian acts, and teeny-weeny Australian acts. Big Australian ticket price. $399 for three days. And you have to pay for parking, and you have to pay for camping, and you need to pay for food and drinks and clothes and maybe some extra chemical substances to help you party along as well. That's your kind of thing. promoting that. But either way, it's It's a a dreaming type of situation. Yeah. So all in all, the three days at that type of festival will easily set you back. How much are they asking? Over $1,000. Oh, tell him she's dreaming. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> Again, for the non-Australian listeners. That's the castle. That's the castle. Even if you're non-Australian, you should know that. You should know that. That's like that, that, that three seconds of the podcast was just about as Australian as like snorting Vegemite through a Tim Tam. <laughs> like that was pretty Australian. Wow, I would never do that. sounds terrible. That's, I'd give it a go. No, you wouldn't. Anyway, okay. so <laughs> what if I told you that there was a time before Splendor in the Grass when festivals didn't last a mere three days, they went for a month. Wow. What if I told you there was a time when festivals didn't require you to mortgage your own kidneys to afford the cost of basic human needs? Huh? What if I told you okay. that there was a time when festivals were free? I would say, go back to your hole from when she came. I don't believe you, you filthy slime pocket of okay, sunshine. He, here's one thing to compromise to make it more believable. What if I told you that instead of Kendrick Lamar... Lord, the Vampire Weekend. You could see Hawkwind, <laughs> Gong, and the Flux of Pink Indians. The Flux of Pink Indians, you say? Well, now that I'd pay money to see. Yeah, I mean, okay, fair enough. So not so great about the last point. <laughs> but imagine a time where festivals you know, are, are free and they went on forever. So this was a reality. This was real. This culture, this when? scene, this ethos. Tell me when. It was born of the hippie movement in the 1960s. Well, yeah, of course it's free. It's bloody hippies. Of course. So free love, free festivals, right? So <laughs> Free drugs, free everything, really. Yeah. Free STDs. What even is the economy? Oh, STDs, that got intense. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So 1967, you had the summer of love. You know, it's remembered as this orgy of, of love and awakening and more than 100,000 hippies descending upon San Francisco in the most prominent gathering of the counterculture to date. 
Sounds like a lot of fun. Like I'd I'd like to be part of it. Oh yeah, Sounds it definitely great. would have been cool. Um, right before the sixties got kind of weird in San Francisco, you know, yeah. <laughs> and people started you know sobering up from the sixties. Yeah, wow. Um, anyway, so this We're not na- going there though. This narrative of love, of skepticism towards the government, uh, of personal freedom, and a, a, I guess a liberal nature towards drug use, was carried forward through to Woodstock in the nineteen. 19- in 1969. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Woodstock was huge, like enormous. It, it attracted over 400,000 people. Also, did have big names such as Jimi Hendrix. So. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. funnily enough, not everyone stuck around for his uh, performance. Because really? it was on the third day. It was, starting to, it was after it had rained and stuff. And he still wow. gave a killer, killer show. Yeah. Know? And anyway. then he died. So yeah. very killer. Anyway, so the point is, these two big things they happen in the u.s and while they weren't the only significant things of the hippie movement Mm. they were amongst the most significant they were influential to say say the least definitely and when you have something as big as potent as powerful as influential with as much energy behind it as the hippie movement did in the late 60s or even in the early 60s it's going to cross the atlantic yeah it's not just america although people do take a lot of their culture from the u.s of a or at least they did i think they still do i think it's pretty clear to say that America has won the culture wars. Yeah. As far as a global culture is concerned. Yeah, definitely. You know? So anyway, it's, it's crossed the It crosses the, the Atlantic ocean? and goes to the UK. Portugal. Okay. UK. Yeah. yeah. Same also thing. across the Atlantic. Yeah, okay. So by the early 1970s, you're starting to see what's known as free festivals spring up across the UK and they're run by UK hippies, right? Oh, lovely. And what's distinct about these hippies and their festivals is that their political concerns are different to their American cousins. Sure, same, same, but different. Yeah, so you still have this undercurrent of counterculture, of free love, of liberalism with, with drugs. All the good things yeah. are a bit more different in their in their approach. Stance. Yeah, and that, okay. that manifests in different ways. So in 1972, one of the very first of these free festivals, one of the most prominent ones, it kicks off. It's called the Windsor Free Festival. Now, Windsor is... Where the Queen lives. Well the, the, well, the royal family has residences in Windsor. They've got residences everywhere, really. But I think <laughs> Windsor is known for having one of the bigger residences. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a Windsor Castle, right? Yeah. And in essentially, this, this festival was billed as a, quote, rent strike, the People's Free Festival held in the Queen's backyard. So it's pretty it's funny. Fine. It's a great idea when you think about it. Yeah, so there's this great big sort of nature reserve behind Windsor Castle where the royal family would just go and have a spot of deer hunting, that's where they <laughs> have their is, festival. Just a spot of deer hunting today. Yeah, it's just a spot of deer hunting. I wouldn't mind, oh yes. Yeah, jolly good show. Hey, this kind of makes me think that maybe we should have a, a, a party on Malcolm Turnbull Street. Have a street party to show show him about rent prices in, Pot, he, uh, in Potts Point. <laughs> funnily enough, he lives right by the water, so we're just going to be splashing around. Uh, yeah, it'd be we, pretty wet. Yeah, pretty wet. <laughs> anyway, so the point is, you can start to see some of these concerns that the... UK hippies have, or at least the people who are engaging in counterculture, it manifests into their festivals as well. Yeah. Not to say that didn't happen in the US, but it's going to be different, of course, in the UK. Now, we're going to take a slight detour. To the, beans? Not to beans. Oh, damn it. We'll get to beans. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> I, know I like you, beans. No, you love your beans. Trust me, I know you love beans. <laughs> so wow. we're going to leave counterculture and free love. We're going to leave it all behind. Why? And we're going to revisit... The opposite. No, no, I want to say with free love. No, please. as I'll you take recall, two of those even. as you recall from our episode on the Iron Lady a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. and as you recall me speaking about the Falklands last week, 
Margaret Thatcher and her Conservative Party came to power on May 4th, 1979 in Britain, right? God damn Conservatives. Those damn Tories. Oh, well, you know, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Britain at this point, as we know, was very sluggish in its economy, relatively high unemployment. Which was only about to get a lot worse, actually. Yeah. It was Thatcher's. Wasn't it? <laughs> it was always. Thatcher's estimation that the unemployment and the sluggish economy was largely due to socialist policies and the nationalisation of various commies. industries. Damn yeah. commies. Okay, so we know her stance on this. We know Thatcher is a fiscal conservative. She's a free market capitalist, yeah. right? Now, the economic changes that Thatcher introduced, along with an ill-timed recession. Uh, led to a lot of people in the UK losing their jobs. We know this. We've spoken about this in multiple have, episodes. And right? if you're unsure about it, go listen to the episodes on the Falkland Wars and the Iron Lady. Yeah, definitely. All about it. So this affected disproportionately young people and working class people. Yeah. So there were tons of young people with no hope for a job. People who would throw a little bit of money together, buy a caravan, chuck in some mattresses, and off they'd go. And they'd join a travelling troupe of people rejecting or rejected by mainstream society, right? So, so hippies. So hippies, <laughs> right? So now instead of just these hippies who are having free festivals, you have an influx of recently displaced, disenfranchised, working-class young people who had felt left behind and abandoned by their government, their society. Yeah, well, I mean, they didn't have jobs or money. Yeah, well, actually, a lot of them were on the dole. So they had money from the government. So, so it's really a kind of they should be liking the government. But we're not getting into it's, that. It's a little, yeah, either way. But naturally, injecting this new group of people is going to change the dynamic of the festival culture. Right. Of Actually, it's not just a festival culture. It was a whole sort of travelling caravan culture, which had existed before all these massive layoffs and stuff as well. But they, you inject all these new people in and it changes the quality of it. What's a travelling caravan? So, okay, so you have... Hippies or neo-hippies, people who are sort of carrying on that tradition of free love and whatnot Mm. through into the late 70s and into the early 80s, right? Where they aren't necessarily the original hippies themselves, but maybe they're the children of hippies or they're the grandchildren of hippies. They're of the lineage. They're of the lineage, perhaps. And they sort of travel around doing cool free stuff around the country. In caravans. In caravans. Cool. They make their home on the road. Yeah, so they're gypsies. Well, in some ways, they were kind of like gypsies, right? But when you start to inject this new group of people, this new dynamic of people who are bitterly disenfranchised, it starts to develop this real sense of tribalism, this real us-versus-them mentality. Okay. And eventually, this group of people that still has this undercurrent of free love and all this stuff, but this new injection of bitterness. Anger. They're known as the peace convoy. Don't. They don't sound like they have all the aspects needed to be peaceful, such as not having bitterness. Well, I mean, yeah, it's easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> Much easier <laughs> said than done. So you may change the demographic of this travelling convoy, but they were still going to festivals, right? Now, yeah. the biggest of which was the Stonehenge Free Festival. Okay. So by 1984, in the shadow of the prehistoric structure, the Stonehenge Free Festival had grown to attract Tens of thousands of people. There was 30,000 plus people at Stonehenge That's in 1984. So was it rocking, like the, the rocks of Stonehenge, or rather stone? No, no, it was, it was rocking. People would essentially rock up and they would party all the way through June. For a whole month. Yeah. Up Holy until the moly. summer solstice on, on or around the 21st How do they have energy for that? That's, well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's, that's freedom, right? That's freedom right there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's being unemployed. Now, <laughs> with... A, 
Yeah, well, that's my way to look at it. <laughs> now, with a vessel of that size, with a strong counterculture, and also with this injection of the angry, disenfranchised youth. Like Squidward. I'm thinking of Squidward from SpongeBob. Just someone that's like keen to be part of the fun, but not happy about anything. Um, no. No, no, it wasn't like Squidward. No, no not okay. at all. It was that's close. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. If anything, I'd say Squidward would have voted for Thatcher. These guys oh, would not have voted such for a Thatcher. No. Such a Tory. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, Squidward wouldn't be there, but there were <laughs> tens of thousands of people there, and some of them weren't the nicest people. There have been reports from the 1984 Stonehenge Free Festival where these bitter, disenfranchised young guys, usually young men, surprise, surprise, were going around just beating up people mercilessly. That's not free anything. No, but... I mean, it's free beating up. It's, it's, it's very much an anarchy sort of thing. People would just do whatever they wanted. There was a like huge the purge. Obviously, there was the use of drugs, but there was the increased sale of drugs, and there was fighting. And Jeez. it's like Narcos meets Fight Club at in a the mud. festival in the mud. <laughs> in the mud. Yeah. So wow. that was Stonehenge Festival of 1984. Now, in 1984, something else really significant happened in the UK. Falkland War. That was 82. Margaret Thatcher wins again. Um, she did win. A, well, she started what would become a great big victory for her, but a huge defeat for the Nazis. They were already well taken care of. Well, are that- they ever taken care of? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, uh, okay, I don't know. Tell me. The miners. Oh, where she laid off a bunch of miners. Yeah. So back in 1946, the I UK government this. took control of the mines. Yep. Essentially, coal mining was nationalised and secured by a very strong labor union. Now, both of those things, a nationalized industry and a strong union, they're it's just labor. the sort of thing that would make the Iron Lady turn away from her tea and crumpets. So it would just ruin her appetite. You know? Yeah, she would not be happy about that. She, she was conservative. Yeah. And unions, not conservative. Well, not necessarily. They're from the Labour government. It depends what your definition of conservative yeah, okay. is. But Fair enough. Anyway. But anyway, she's she's unhappy about the mines. I'll say this. I'll, I agree. Generally, conservatives don't like unions, and she's unhappy about the mines. Great. But here's the other thing as well. She waged absolute war on those mines, uh, pledging to close 20 of them in March of 1984. And we spoke about this. We definitely did. Lady. Now, the National Union of Miners, they mobilized very quickly and it reached an absolute fever pitch on June 18, 1984 with the Battle of Oregreve. Oh, Battle of Oregreve, you say? Yeah, the Battle of Oregreve, which was... A mine? <laughs> well, Oregreve was a mining town and this was one of the mines that was going to be shut down though. And the... As I said, the National Union of Miners mobilized very quickly and they essentially were picketing. There was 5,000 miners picketing and the police came in not to control or subdue them, but uh, to defeat the protesters. Bit of an excessive use of force, I'd say. So 5,000 miners met 6,000 police. I'm guessing the on. police won. Well, yeah, I guess it, overall it was a victory for the state because as we know... The miners didn't win any of their concessions no. that they were hoping for in their union strikes. They did quite badly against Margaret. And following this particular confrontation at the Battle of at the Battle of O'Grave, uh, seventy-one picketers they were charged with rioting and violent disorder. Right now, at the time, that's a crime that was punishable with life in prison. So no, wow. no small thing. That is huge, huge for picketing. Huge. Now, what do you have as an example here? You see, people organizing themselves together in a way that didn't please the government. Yeah. 
Like the festivals. Like the festivals. Granted, they had legitimate grievances, and maybe they there was wrongdoing on both sides. But it does sort of raise the question whether you believe the miners were doing the right thing or not. What is the role of the police in a society? And that's, that same question is going to be raised again when we finally do reach your favourite thing, the beans. Oh, thank so God. Are we, we come to soon? We come to our date in history. I like some Heinz in my belly. We come to our date in history. The Battle of Beanfield. It took place on June 1st, 1985. And you might be wondering, why is the Battle of Beanfield? Why hasn't she been talking about festivals this whole damn time? Yeah, festivals well, and miners. the peace convoy were making their way to the Stonehenge Free Festival of 1985 when they got stopped by the police. Oh. The convoy got stopped. And I assume it was a similar battle to the mining incident from the year before, which is where we tie in the mine. See, I'm good at picking up these clues. Yeah, very similar stuff. So essentially, over the years, because we've gone over 10 years of having the Stonehenge Free Festival here, right? It's grown in scale. It's become progressively more rowdy and uncomfortable for the residents. So eventually in 1985, there was a high court ruling to ban the festival. Now, because it was 85, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have mobile phones, members of this hippie commune that travelled around on the road, they didn't catch the memo. No, they probably didn't. I mean, the carrier pigeons might have gotten there at some point, (laughs) but they're hard to track. So they're just going along on their annual pilgrimage to Stonehenge to to go party throughout June until the summer solstice. But they're stopped along the way. By the police. By the police. Now, the police, they pretty much learnt exactly how to deal with crowds and how to deal with despondent dissenters, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Police see 1984 battle against the miners. Yeah, the Battle of Orgrave, right? They literally took these same techniques, right, to deal with, rather than aggressive miners, but just these counterculture weirdos, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Now... Lovely. So, essentially... The convoy is traveling along and they get stopped just before the entrance of Stonehenge itself. And they're flanked on either side by over 1,300 police. Wow. And this convoy only has about 600 people, but they're in their caravans as well. And Cars versus humans, yeah, fair call. Well, and this is where you have conflicting reports from both sides. People in the caravan would say, no, we didn't try, try and run over the police. The police would say, they tried and run over us. Yeah. What did happen was members of the convoy, they went ahead and they diverted off the main road, jumped out of their caravans, cut down fences into a bean field. Right. Where the caravan convoy, a number of them went in and tried to escape the police. But the police, they mobbed in and started essentially just enacting a huge amount of police brutality on their own citizens. Wow. In England. In a bean field, no less. And they arrested everyone. It was the largest. Everyone. Yeah, they arrested everyone. It was the largest arrest of citizens in the UK. There was the largest mass arrest of citizens in the UK ever. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It is 600 people and their caravans. It wasn't just the fact that they were arresting people who arguably may have not done anything wrong. It's who these people were. They were young people. They were disenfranchised. They were families. For, uh, there, there were many families there as well. And they weren't just arrested. They had their caravans, their... Their houses, essentially. Their homes smashed up, beaten up, destroyed. And they were yeah. ripped out of them. So it was a, a hugely upsetting thing for them and for many people who were looking on. 
And again, it raises this question now. Sure, the police were, quote, doing their job. But what is the job of the police? Well, it's also to the extent that they're doing their job. Like, you don't have to do your job, bash up people, and then also destroy their homes. Like, you can arrest them. I'm sure some of the people would have fought back, but I'm sure there would have been people that didn't resist arrest. There's a way to, to do things that doesn't involve absolute dismantling their lives. That's right, that's right. And that's why I don't like music festivals. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was the entire point of the story. <laughs> you don't like music festivals. Wow. Nash, I hate to tell you, but if you go to a music festival, chances are you're not going to be arrested and spend your life in prison. Well, funnily enough, nobody who was arrested spent their life in prison uh, from the Beanfield thing either. That's good. Because there was like... It was, the huge increase are like, guys, you've just totally abused your power here. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but you're right. I, I'm safe to go to a music festival. I'm not that much of a curmudgeon. I still have a little bit of pep <laughs> in my step. I don't Either. know. Still what the kids are saying these days. I've seen you drag your feet and such. Now, Nash, i got to say, that is an incredible story about Thank festivals. Um, great finish at the end. But unfortunately, it does bring us to the end of another week in history. Join us back here next week as we take you to a time before you were born. right foundation is harder than ever il maquillage makes it easy to find your perfect match online no store required with 50 shades of flawless coverage and over 60,000 five-star reviews the hype is real their online quiz uses ai to find your ideal shade in seconds and with try before you buy you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.